I'm Tracy Sable tonight on EWTN News Nightly. Explosions rock a Gaza hospital overnight, Palestinians flee, and the death toll continues to rise. We have the latest on the Holy Land as we speak directly with a top Israeli diplomat. Life at stake. A top medical group inches closer to normalizing assisted suicide. Pro-life doctors sound the alarm. Major meta problems. A social media whistleblower testifies on the harm Instagram has on teens. What families need to know. And rescued at last. <laughs> Columbia's Catholic Church praises God for the release of a famed soccer player's father after a terrifying two weeks. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us. Our top story tonight, the ravages of war in the Middle East. Today, the largest hospital in Gaza is hit by bombardments. A warning, some of the images may be disturbing. Uh, several social media videos show people injured. While it is unclear what exactly hit the hospital, witnesses in the video say it was strikes on the area. Many Gazans have been sheltering in Al-Shifa Hospital. According to the IDF, Hamas terrorists are hiding in underground tunnels beneath the hospital. Well, earlier today, America's top diplomat issued his most direct condemnation yet of the high death toll in Gaza from Israel's offensive. At the same time, much more needs to be done uh, to protect civilians and uh, to make sure that humanitarian assistance reaches them. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. Far too many have suffered uh, these past weeks. And we want to do everything possible to prevent harm to them and to maximize the assistance that gets to them. Uh, Israel announced today another six-hour window for civilians to evacuate south from northern Gaza. The top United Nations human rights chief raised doubts over Israel's unilateral establishment of safe zones in Gaza, saying that there is nowhere within the territory where security could be guaranteed. The Hamas-run health ministry reports that more than 11,000 people have been killed since the fighting began on October 7th. I want to bring in senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister, Mark Regev. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Uh, as Israel enters the second month of its war with Hamas, tell us what has been achieved so far. So we are, as we speak, uh, our forces are in uh, Gaza City, which is in many ways the capital of uh, Hamas's military machine. And we are attacking Hamas targets. And basically, our goal is to destroy Hamas's military machine and end their rule over the Gaza Strip. And I think that goal is, is clear for Israelis, because, frankly, we refuse to live any longer next to this terrorist enclave on our southern border. Israeli parents should not have to live in fear of, of terrorists crossing the frontier and, and butchering their children in the middle of the night. But I think it also has to be understood that destroying Hamas is, is not just good for Israel. It's good for the people of Gaza. I'm curious, what about the hostages? Uh, what is the current situation? And Israel, is it any closer to securing their release? So, un unfortunately, I, uh, I haven't got a lot of news to share with you. There are 239 hostages, according to our latest numbers, being held by Hamas. There's a, a group of them that are people over the age of 70, elderly people, even Holocaust survivors among them. 
and there are a group of 32 children, of them babies and toddlers. And, and I think the fact that Hamas has taken both the elderly and the very, very young hostage shows us exactly who we're dealing with. I, I want to talk about this. I, I understand that several hospitals in Gaza have been surrounded by Israeli tanks. What more can you tell us about this? I mean, why the hospital? And also, there are reports of the Al-Shifa hospital being hit by Israeli mis uh, missiles, that is. Is that true? So there are all sorts of lifting reports coming out. Uh, Israel does not target hospitals. But you do have a situation whereby uh, Hamas has built its military infrastructure, its command and control, its tunnel network underneath hospitals. They've done so deliberately because they abuse the civilian population of Gaza and use it as a human shield. So we are surrounding areas where they have their command and control, and our soldiers are risking their lives to go in there and, and take on the Hamas. We do not target civilians. We do not target hospitals. We're surrounding areas where we know where there is Hamas, and we're making a maximum effort to avoid civilians getting hurt on the contrary. Uh, we've opened up over the last few days humanitarian corridors that have allowed people to flee the Gaza Strip, to sorry, to flee Gaza City and to move out safely. And I think yesterday 80,000 people were on the Israeli uh, uh, humanitarian corridor fleeing to the south. We prefer that all the civilians leave uh, temporarily while the fighting is on because we don't want to see anyone get caught up in the crossfire. Uh, in a recent interview, Prime Minister Netanyahu said that Israel does not seek to occupy Gaza after the current conflict ends. Yet earlier this week, he said that Israel would take overall security responsibility in Gaza after the war. Uh, that said, what is the end game or the strategy after the war ends with Hamas? And who will govern Gaza? So in a post-Hamas Gaza will be, firstly, demilitarized. Secondly, it will be de-radicalized. We can't have the sort of hatred that, that has been taught to people by Hamas, uh, teaching young people that it's a, it's a religious duty to murder Jews. That's unacceptable. So demilitarized, de-radicalized, and, of course, uh, rebuilt, because there'll be much construction needed when this fighting is over. All right. We will leave it right there. Mark Riev, thank you so, so much, sir, for joining us. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Well, the church's humanitarian arm is strategizing how to provide aid to the Holy Land amid the war. The regional coordinator for Caritas Internationalis in the Middle East and North Africa tells us their Jerusalem headquarters cannot provide physical assistance amid the tension. So, in the meantime, the Caritas team is offering psychosocial support to those affected. From our side, as Caritas Internationalis and Regional Secretariat, we're organizing meetings, preparing with our sister organization, how to, uh, once there is possibility to provide support and emergency aid, how we can move and how we can act as quickly as possible. Caritas Lebanon has already assisted about 20,000 internally displaced persons in Lebanon due to the war in the Holy Land. While in Jerusalem, crowds of faithful Catholics gathered last night in prayer at a vigil for peace in the Holy Land. Cardinal Pierre Batista Pizzabala, Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, led the prayer, offering hope amid the chaos, saying the presence of Jesus is consolation for us all. He also encouraged the faithful to live as a community and to be ready 
to be peacemakers. Well, the White House reveals new details about a highly anticipated summit, which will bring the leaders of the U.S. and China face to face. We now know that President Joe Biden will meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping next Wednesday. The U.S. and China seek to resolve tricky issues that have been plaguing their relationship. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the upcoming summit will focus on the continued importance of maintaining open lines of communication and a range of regional and global issues, adding another goal to responsibly manage competition and work together where our interests align. Well, I think it's fair to say that U.S.-China relations is certainly at one of the lowest points in history. Analysts say there has been positive momentum in recent weeks, but there is a lot of work to be done. I think there is a recognition on both sides that, you know, it's not going to be possible to negotiate away all the differences that exist or the points of friction. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping last met a year ago in Indonesia. Their next meeting on November 15th is scheduled to take place at the APEC summit in San Francisco. But Republican presidential candidates worry that President Biden will not stand up to China. Just today, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley said, I think you've seen Biden has begged for this meeting and they're not scared of Joe Biden. The president still pushing forward, seeking a second term with Vice President Kamala Harris, who just flew to South Carolina today to file the necessary paperwork to get on the ballot. We are fighting for fundamental freedoms, including the freedom of people to have access to the ballot and be able to vote. Oh, with a record number of people illegally immigrating into the country, lawmakers grapple with an important question. Should illegal migrants be granted work permits? Well, some Democrats say yes, migrants need to work to support themselves and their families until their asylum cases are heard. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales has that story. Good evening. Several Democrats on Capitol Hill are supporting the idea of expanding work visas to illegal migrants. Many met with mayors from major cities like Denver and Chicago, both sanctuary cities, to discuss possibilities and lobby for money. But Republicans say that it's just a ploy by Democrats to get more votes at the ballot box. So we want to partner with the federal government to say whatever decision they decide on who should or should not be admitted to the country when they arrive, uh, they should come with work authorization and we can help them pursue the American dream. Denver, Colorado Mayor Mike Johnston and others traveled to D.C. asking the White House and Congress for help with the migrant crisis. The mayors want $5 billion to help cities deal with the influx and allowing illegal migrants greater access to work permits. The U.S. bishops support immigration reform, including caring for the thousands of migrant children who have crossed the southern border. Just yesterday, the U.S. bishops' migration chairman sent Congress a letter with recommendations to further protect these children. Among the proposals, fully fund child relocation programs and legal services, strengthen child trafficking and labor abuse prevention efforts, pass a bill allowing migrant children to apply for refugee status. Senator Marco Rubio tells me President Biden's open borders are causing illegal migration. Now you're stuck between having people that are now in your country. If you give them permission to work, you're incentivizing more people to come. If you don't give them permission to work, how are they supposed to survive? This is the quandary that we're facing. Other Republicans tell me it's about increasing Democrats' voting power. A proposed New York City law would allow about 900,000 non-citizens with work permits to vote, even after they enter the country illegally. The measure is currently tied up in court. 
uh, we want a comprehensive solution. Um, but that issue means it has to be comprehensive. We have to meet these issues, uh, whether it's work permits, a fix for DACA, uh, and a path to citizenship. Those are things uh, that we strongly stand for. Border policy is currently tied up in Congress as Republicans and Democrats fight over what might be included in a new bill. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN, News Nightly. Oh, we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including a medical 180, what a major physician's group is considering about assisted suicide. And good news for the Sisters of Life. Thanks for staying with us. The American Medical Association may reverse their stance on assisted suicide and take a neutral position on the life-ending practice. The AMA meets tomorrow to discuss revisions to its assisted suicide policies. One resolution proposes to stop, quote, criminalizing doctors who perform assisted suicide and calls for the term to be replaced with medical aid in dying instead. Physician-assisted suicide is when a doctor facilitates a patient's death. The Catholic Church teaches life must be defended from conception until natural death. That assisted suicide is intrinsically evil. In the past, the AMA firmly opposed the practice. Joining us now is Dr. Jeff White, a practicing cardiologist who has been a 45-year member of the AMA and will be one of the group of doctors testifying against these assisted suicide changes at tomorrow's meeting. Dr. White, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Um, so is this a 180 for the AMA, and what is at stake at tomorrow's meeting? Well, thanks, Tracy. Uh there is a lot at stake, uh, and if these provisions were to be adopted, there would be a near-complete 180 of the AMA's opposition, long-standing opposition to assisted suicide. If you go back to 1993, Dr. Jack Kevorkian had assisted the suicide of about 16 patients, and at that, that time, the American Medical Association adopted a policy that physician-assisted suicide is fundamentally incompatible with the role of a physician as healer. Now, in 30 years, the AMA has consistently, reliably, and reproducibly defended that opposition, most recently about four years ago by a supermajority vote of the delegates. This weekend, the committees of the AMA will consider two proposals, as you have outlined, one of which would remove operational opposition to assisted suicide and change the name to an ethically vague term in AMA policy, and the other would flatly take the AMA to a position of neutrality on the issue. Dr. White, I mean, how did this shift happen? Where is this pressure coming from, you know, within the American Medical Association? And I thought, you know, part of the Hippocratic Oath stated, do no harm. Well, you are correct that the Hippocratic Oath says, and I swore it over 40 years ago, that I will give no deadly drug to a patient. In physician-assisted suicide, a patient who is in desperate straits, believes that they have come to the end of their rope, comes to a doctor and says, I would like to end my life. And rather than getting suicide prevention or counseling, enhanced social support or spiritual support, the doctor instead writes a prescription for a lethal, massive overdose of narcotics and sedatives, gives it to the patient with instructions on how to take it with the intent that the patient be made dead. That is clearly a violation of Hippocratic ethics that have stood well for our profession for over 2,000 years. The impetus for the AMA to reverse its position has come as a gradual number of states have legalized the practice, now nine states and the District of Columbia. Uh, in almost every case in which that has happened, 
a state medical society has first gone to a neutral position, and then that has been seen as a green light to legalize the practice by legislators in those states. So it's very important that the AMA maintain opposition and not go to a neutral position on assisted suicide. Dr. White, I want to ask you this before we run out of time. Um, advocates on physician-assisted suicide, uh, they claim that this is death with dignity mm -hmm. for loved ones who are physically suffering. What would you say to that? Well, Tracy, if you look at the reports from Oregon and from Washington State, they ask patients, why did you want assisted suicide? Why did you ask for it? And almost nine in 10 of those patients will say, I'm afraid I'll be a burden to my family. I'm afraid I won't be able to take care of my personal needs. I'm afraid I'll be a financial burden on my family. And only a small number of those, perhaps 25%, is the idea that I'm suffering uncontrollable pain and issue. So the advocates would say that uh, this is death with dignity, but I really think, Tracy, that that message inherently says to others who fight through illnesses to their natural death, who bear suffering, that your death is not dignified. And I think that's a terrible message to send out to the patients that we care for. Um, Physician-assisted suicide is not death with dignity. It is a tragedy and an abdication of medical ethics. Well, Dr. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Thank we you. really appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you. Well, in New York, a victory for the Sisters of Life, who won their lawsuit against the New York Department of Health. The state passed a law last year demanding private information from life-affirming pregnancy centers who do not offer abortion, including from the Sisters. New York State is now forbidden from demanding information from the Sisters of Life or punishing them for refusing to provide it following this lawsuit. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, a whistleblower's warning. A former Meta engineer saw his own child face harassment on Instagram. Hear his testimony to lawmakers. Plus, a famed soccer player reunites with his father, recently freed from a kidnapping. Hear about the heartwarming reunion and how the church in Colombia reacted. Welcome back. An Instagram whistleblower claims a social media giant Meta fails to protect teens after his own daughter received unwanted sexual advances on the Instagram app. Meta knows the harm that kids experience on their platform. And the executives know that their measures fail to address it. Arturo Behar, an ex-Facebook engineering director and consultant, testified Tuesday before a Senate subcommittee. Behar claims that Meta's leadership, including CEO Mark Zuckerberg, knowingly turned a blind eye, ignoring years of warnings about the danger social media poses to teens. Instead, Behar says they fostered a culture of see no evil, hear no evil, that overlooked evidence of such harm. And joining us now is Megan Griffin, the lead public policy analyst at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Megan, thanks for coming on. Uh, talk to us more about this hearing and what stuck out the most to you regarding Mr. Behar's testimony. Mr. Behar was an incredible witness during the hearing and told us that when he became aware of this issue, he found that one in eight girls between the ages of 
13 and 15 had received unwanted sexual advances on Instagram within the past week that Instagram had conducted that survey. And one in three girls between the ages of 13 and 15 had received an unwanted sexual advance at any time. That's one in three teenage girls that are receiving unwanted sexual advances from predators that are allowed to run rampant on this platform. Mr. Behar also revealed that regulators are, well, Meta is well aware that their reforms are not doing anything to actually address this issue and that they really have failed to take action. So they must be held accountable. And it's really time for Congress to take action and step in. Yeah, Megan, I mean, does any of this surprise you? Anything from his testimony? Absolutely not. Some of the stories that we hear in our law center and in our day-to-day work are just incredible. We have predators reaching out to children online without any regard for children's safety. And Instagram is the number one platform where children are likely to run into severe sexual content, suicidal ideation, depression, body image disorder, depression content. I mean, it's just incredible what children are exposed to on these platforms. And it's really an indictment against Congress that it's been allowed to go on this long without anyone taking action. Yeah. And I know this really isn't the first time that Instagram um, has been called out for one one whistleblower uh, formally said was a perfect storm of harm on its platform. So why do you think that you know, really no meaningful changes have been made thus far. Because it would require tech to actually be held accountable. Currently, under Communications Decency Act Section 230, they haven't been required to take any action at all. And with the Earn It Act and with the Kids Online Safety Act, they would be required to implement meaningful changes and listen to their users and protect kids online. But it will really require some reform. And they're not willing to do the work. So they must be required to do it by Congress. Megan, we have about 30 seconds left or so. Uh, but really quickly, I want to ask you this. As we know, government can work very slowly and changes do take a lot of time. What can we as parents do to protect our children online? Instagram does have some parental safety controls. And parents should also be activating parental safety controls on their children's phones and devices. But really, call your senator, call your representative, urge them to take action. Congress has to act because big tech clearly is not doing it on their own. All right, Megan, thank you so much for your insights. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, a call to prayer this Veterans Day from the head of the U.S. military archdiocese in a statement to the faithful Archbishop Timothy Brolio says in part, quote, Please stop today, remember, and say a prayer for our veterans, especially we cannot forget those who continue to suffer the effects of their wounds, either in mind or in body. Well, finally tonight, joyous scenes in Colombia as the father of famed soccer player Luis Diaz has been released from captivity. Diaz arrived at his family home on Thursday after spending nearly two weeks as a captive of the National Liberation Army guerrilla group. Diaz had words of praise and gratitude upon his return home. First of all, I want to thank God for having given me the second chance and for being back home. 
The Colombian Bishops Conference also thanked God for Diaz's release, sharing this photo right here, which includes two priests who helped to facilitate his return. So wonderful to see. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, at Instagram, at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless. Thank you.